0: In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Jesus said, Even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Change your minds. All week I've been thinking, this is the point of today's gospel lesson. Jesus wants you to change your your mind. Jesus wants you to be open to transformation. Jesus wants you to set aside your own self-righteousness and open your eyes to the experience of other people. Jesus wants you to believe in God's power. Jesus wants you to change your mind. And so I've been turning this phrase over in my head, and I have been struggling with it. A couple things in particular I keep getting stuck on. The first, what if your mind is already in the right place? And if you know me, you might laugh, because it's true. I like being right. And I think I am a lot of the time. Maybe you can relate. So I keep thinking about this. What if your mind is already in the right place? The chief priests and the elders seem kind of unsure here about what is right, about what God is calling them to do, to believe. Surely not everyone in the world needs to change their mind. Surely someone out there is right. So how do we know who? How do we know if what we are believing strongly is God's will or not? How do we know if we need to change? And a second thing I've been thinking about, changing your mind is kind of a scary thought when you really think about it, really take the words apart. Change your mind. Your mind makes you who you are in a way, doesn't it? Your mind is you. And to change it is to lose some sense of self, some grasp you have on who you are in the world. So how do we know what to do? How can we trust what change we even need to make when we hear Jesus say to us today, change your mind? I've started this sermon kind of at the metaphysical level, all about what's going on in our minds. So let's take it back down to earth and I'll share a few stories to see if we can parse through this. The first story, Last year, my wife, Caitlin, and our two sons, Harry and Gus, then two years old and eight months old, traveled to Tennessee for our dear friend's wedding. Our friends Nick and Jesse chose to get married in Tennessee because that is where Jesse is from. He and Nick decided the Smoky Mountains would be the perfect place to tie the knot and the location would make it easier for Jesse's family to get there. As the wedding plans were underfoot, we began to hear stories from Jesse about his extended family, most of whom we'd never met. How he wasn't sure how many of them would be able to attend, mostly because they weren't sure if they approved of two men getting married. There was a spectrum of attitudes about the wedding in Jesse's family, from very supportive, his parents, to very disapproving, one of his uncles. As the date got closer and closer, Jesse just wasn't sure how many of the people in the middle of the spectrum were going to end up coming or not. This whole ordeal made me feel defensive for my friend and also privately wary of meeting his family. It also made me feel a little bit nervous about going to Tennessee at all. Was this going to be a safe place to travel with my wife and two kids? And I was actually going to officiate the wedding What was in store for us? What might we have to deal with when we got there? On the day of the wedding, we had a lot to do. A rehearsal, getting dressed, hair and makeup, and photos. And Caitlin and I hadn't put together that we both had to do all those things simultaneously. And we hadn't arranged anyone to help us with Harry and Gus. We were at the wedding suite with a cranky toddler who wouldn't nap, and a hungry baby, and our hands full of curling irons and makeup, wondering what we were going to do. When in swooped, Jesse's cousin-in-law, a guy about our age, with a thick southern drawl and a beer can in one hand. Y'all want some help with the kids? And within a few minutes, he found a game to occupy Harry and he made a bottle to feed Gus. You two keep getting ready, he said with a smile and the kids were fully taken care of. Caitlin and I still talk about John's kindness. We don't know how we would have done it without him on that day. At the very least, our hair would not have looked as good. And it was help from, to my mind, a totally unexpected place. I had gone into the situation expecting, if not fisticuffs, then at least to put up some protective barriers between me and my family and Jesse's extended family. And yet here came someone ready to break through them. John, as a parent himself, saw exactly what we were facing and knew how to help, and he did. I don't know anything really about what John thinks about politics or God or human sexuality or anything. I don't know what John says but I know what John does. I know that John came and helped us. Another story about changing minds. As some of you may know, my mother is an Episcopal priest as well. She grew up in the 1960s before the ordination of women to the priesthood in an Episcopal church in Reno, Nevada. Now my mother is a special creature. She's probably watching this. (laughs) And as a child, she loved church. She loved everything about it. And she especially loved her priest, Father Carol. The whole family loved him. Her brothers loved him. Her mother loved him. And even her church skeptic father thought he was smart and respected him enough to say his being a priest was a loss for the business world, which was his highest form of praise. So Father Carroll became a family friend. Eventually, Father Carroll was called to another church, but the family kept in touch with him through the years, occasional visits and Christmas cards. And then my mother's family moved back east to Philadelphia They found a new church and a new priest, of course, but really for my mom, Father Carol was the one she remembered most as being foundational to her faith, the one who taught her what there was to love about church, about a church community and how it reflected God's love in the world. When my mother was in high school, the debate about women's ordination in the Episcopal church was really heating up. And one day she saw that father Carol was coming to town to participate in a panel debate on the subject. My mother harboring questions about her own call to be ordained as a priest attended the panel and father Carol was on the wrong side. He was against the ordination of women speaking loudly and assuredly about his stance that it just wasn't biblical. This was a sadness for my mother, though knowing him as she did, she couldn't say she was surprised. Many years later, my mother was finally set to be ordained. She had met my father and they had started a family and then entered the ordination process later in life she jumped through all the hoops of it, and finally, finally, she had the ordination invitations in hand, and she decided to send one to Father Carol. On it, she wrote, "'I hope receiving this will be a cause for joy rather than consternation, because of course it is your example of faithfulness all those years ago in Reno, that led me to understanding this call. And she got a response back from him. Dear Nancy, I have come to understand that the ordination of women to the priesthood was a necessary innovation for the church. I'm happy for you. One more story about change. A good friend of mine has a difficult relationship with her brother. Again and again, as an adult, he causes problems in the family. He does not care for himself, he fights with their parents, and he doesn't seem to want to maintain a loving relationship with anyone. For years, she would describe her overwhelming emotion towards her brother as anger. She would speak to him and feel like she was having a heart attack. That's how worked up she would get with this anger. Finally, she couldn't take the emotion of it anymore. She hated the way she felt. And so she saw a therapist to work through it. Even though she was beginning to realize her brother would not change, she didn't want to feel this way anymore. The therapist suggested, if you could imagine that your brother is suffering, would you have so much anger? She says this sentence alone changed her heart. It melted the anger away into care, sympathy, and a new perspective from which to understand her brother's experience. So here is where I see God in these stories. God wants us to be in relationship with each other. God wants us to see the other people who walk this earthly pilgrimage with us. And God wants us to imagine what it is like to be them. Every person you see, God wants you to imagine what life is like for them. Because through them, we are able to see God. This is how God is in relationship with us, through our connection to other people. And then the result is actually not that we should change our minds but rather that God will change our minds. God will be the one to enter in and change your mind if you can remain open to it. So how do we know? How do we know if we are right? If God wants us to change? How do we know what God wants from us? We will only know through our relationship with the other, the person we fear, the person who has disappointed us, the person who seems unlikely to help, the person who we think must not be good enough or smart enough or strong enough. God asks us to stay curious and to stay open to change, no matter how right we may feel or how much faith we may think we have. As is so often true, it's easier said than done, especially for those of us who like to be right, especially for those of us who may not be safe making ourselves vulnerable to every person in the world. Those of us who know there are those intent on hurting us. And don't be mistaken, God wants you to be safe. But ensuring your own safety does not preclude you from the gift of your imagination, imagining the experience of the other and opening yourself to the way it might change you. This kind of change is not losing yourself. Instead, this kind of change is gaining a new perspective on who you are and who God has made you to be. Jesus knows as he speaks to the chief priests and scribes that we humans mess this up again and again but we also see that God gives us the opportunity again and again to do better. Whatever way you have behaved in the past, whatever thing you have said you might do, whatever way you have hurt another, Jesus is not concerned with what is past. Jesus is only concerned with what you are going to do next. How will you treat people now? Now you have heard this, now you have seen this, we can hear Jesus say. Now go and let God change you. Amen.